And now I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, Mr. Patrick French. Patrick French is a leading global commentator on South Asia and the author of numerous books, including most recently of India, a portrait, an intimate biography of 1.2 billion people. His previous book, The World Is What It Is, the authorized biography of V.S. Nepal, won the National Book Critics Circle Award and the Hawthorne Prize. He also writes for publications including The Economist, Vanity Fair, Newsweek, and The New York Times, and is the editor-in-chief of the news aggregation and comment website, www.theindiasite.com. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Patrick French. Thank you. Well, it is uh, great to be here, and amazingly enough, this is my first day, the first day of my life when I've set foot on Californian soil. For many years, I've been knowing one day I'll go to California, and today is that day. <laughs> and I have to say that, um, I mean, so far, California has lived up to its billing. Uh, I wandered down to the beach just down there, and people were behaving in very uh, Californian ways, if you'll excuse me using that particular uh, adjective. Um, there was a man on a bike with a long lead with a dog behind him and a woman jogging in a bikini and she turned and she said to him, I like your dog. And in London, where I'm from, nobody would speak to someone else in public like that unless they'd been formally introduced probably by a third party. And, you know, the other thing that happened is that within like a minute or two of that happening, there was a woman on the beach doing mudras like a Hindu goddess, you know, the hand signs like that. So that was all good. But... We've got to concentrate on India, not on, on California or on London customs or on anything uh, like that. And India is increasingly complicated because all of the old assumptions that I at least was brought up on at school in the 70s and 80s seem to be going out of the window. So I guess the, the main ideas that I had at school and at college were, uh, number one, India's poverty the idea that India was one of the poorest countries in the world and was pretty much designed to stay that way. Another one was India as a center of spirituality, that maybe the two were somehow connected, that maybe Indians didn't really care about money because they were so spiritual. And the third, which increasingly people in India seem to get irritated by, is the hyphenation with Pakistan, India-Pakistan, which again, uh, now that India is becoming more prosperous and Pakistan is in a less good state, perhaps, than it was a few decades ago, seems increasingly to not be a way to look at India. Maybe India should be looked at as an entity on its own and not in terms of uh, being hyphenated to anybody else. Now, I think it was three years ago that on the Forbes rich list that four out of the eight richest people in the world turned out to be Indian, which in itself was a fairly surprising uh, and shocking thing, particularly given that a very substantial uh, portion of the population has remained extremely poor, well uh, below the poverty line, wherever you care to draw that poverty line. And that in itself is a huge topic of argument and debate, which I will touch on uh, briefly in a moment. And in order to make sense of that, in order to put that into context, I think it's worth going back and looking at the fact that when India got independence in 1947, there was pretty much a consensus that closing off the economy from the rest of the world economy was a good idea. The idea of globalization uh, or, or the economic liberalization of the early 1990s was very far away from the thinking of the ruling Congress party. What you really had was the kind of ideas that were prevalent in uh, much of Europe, Western Europe at the time, particularly the Fabian socialism of the British Labour Party being adapted for an Indian setting. And so somebody like Jawaharlal Nehru, India's first prime minister, believed that through central organization, central planning, limiting the role of indigenous entrepreneurs, cutting off global trade, that India could somehow be planned to prosperity. And there was a figure who was an amazing statistician called P.C. Mahalanobis, who 
was a great mind, but unfortunately he was put in charge of trying to implement this in practice. And uh, when I was writing my new book, I went back and looked at some of his speeches from the early 1950s, and they are really shocking. You have him saying things like, uh, I've just designed a 12 times ta 12 table with inputs and outputs into the economy. Every single input and every single output is going to be organized and controlled from the ministry. And I'm shortly going to expand it to being a 90 times 90 table of inputs and outputs. And you think that must give you, what, 8,100 table cells. And they haven't even got computers by this time. And all you need is for one line on this matrix to choke up. For example, steel production to be half what was anticipated, which is what happened by the late 1950s, for the entire thing to stop working. So you had a situation really by the uh, 1970s where per capita GDP was growing more slowly than it had at any point during the preceding 100 years. And there was this figure of Manmohan Singh, who is now India's prime minister, who almost by accident, really, uh, during a balance of payments crisis in the early 90s, became India's finance minister. He was a quiet man, he was a bureaucrat, he was a technocrat, but he instituted and launched the reforms which have been so crucial in determining the kind of economy and the kind of country that India has now turned into. I think at that time that Manmohan Singh and his contemporaries never thought things would get moving quite so fast. They certainly didn't picture an 8 or 9% uh, annual growth rate uh, and, you know, if you, if you think about 8% 8, 8 annual growth compounded over a few years, it's really remarkable, particularly if you're in the situation that, you know, so many economies are in today where you're, you're thinking, are we on plus one or are we on minus one, where everything is kind of bumping along the bottom. And you think, well, 8% and then 8% and 8%. It is an extraordinary uh, thing that is going on uh, in India at the moment. Now, at the end of that process, or, 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 or you could say in the middle of that process, because it is anticipated that a fairly substantial growth rate, maybe not quite 8 or 9%, but certainly 6 or 7%, uh, will go on for some time. There have been a handful of people who have made immense fortunes, who've landed in a certain position in their country's history, which has enabled them to make the kind of fortunes that are only made very uh, occasionally in history. For example, in the US in the uh, 19th, late 19th century. Um, so to just give a few examples of people from the kind of different levels of that economic change, people who've kind of done well, people who've done badly, and people who are, who are somewhere uh, in the middle. I met uh, in uh, Chennai, in uh, Tamil Nadu, a, few, uh, a year or so ago, a man called C.K. Ranganathan. He's about the same age as me. He was a chemistry graduate. His, uh, his father was a math teacher. And when he came out as a chemistry graduate, there were no jobs. He didn't really know what to do. But he had the bright idea of putting shampoo into sachets and then selling the individual sachets to people who couldn't afford to buy a whole bottle. So rather than saying there are people who can afford shampoo and the people, there are people who aren't, he thought, well, how about you sell one sachet at a time? And so he put all his very meager savings into creating this thing. And he found that the difficulty was that in order to expand, there was nothing he could do because at that time you could not borrow commercially from a bank. You could only borrow from one uh, particular community, the Marwaris, which was essentially a caste-based trading community charging 4.5% monthly interest. So it was quite a considerable loan that you'd be taking if you were going to, going to, going to take, take the money from them. And equally, the distribution was very difficult because uh, the terms that, were, again, were being offered by merchant communities or merchant castes were very bad. So what he did was he hired a room in a hotel and he got the cardboard boxes full of the sachets and he sprayed them with perfume and he got people who were junior civil servants. And he said, you can buy these buy the box uh, up front, it's cash up front, and then you can take control of the market in these particular cities or towns around Kerala, uh, Tamil Nadu, and Karnataka. And what was incredible about him was that he, he stuck with it, and it took off, and by the early 1990s, he was doing pretty well. But then along came economic liberalization. So suddenly there were all these big foreign companies coming in and doing the same thing because it was such a good idea. So he then moved over to things like shikakai and these uh, Indian traditional remedies and herbal shampoos. And he diversified and then came back with new products, having got people from the Indian Institutes of Technology and uh, people who'd been trained well in management inside India. And he put them into the company. And today he employs, uh, I think, just over 
a thousand people, um, and he has a turnover of about 140 million US dollars a year. So that is a kind of extraordinary personal story. But then there was somebody else I met around the same time called uh, Sunil Mittal. And Sunil Mittal's idea, Mittal idea was even better. He thought that he would import uh, push-button phones in the 80s from uh, Japan. And so he did that, and it all went quite well. And then along came uh, the auctioning of telecom licenses for uh, the spectrum for cell phones. And so he got a foreign corporation, which, I, which will remain nameless, and said, you know, what kind of market could there be for these new cell phones? And they said, we think it's going to be big. We think you could sell 50,000 of these in India during the next 10 years. <laughs> now, he now runs Bharti Airtel, which has 140 million subscribers in India. And in India, the whole of India, there are something like 700 million cell phones which is a, a truly mind-boggling statistic. And the way to explain it is the fact that people use them very carefully. Uh, they might only send SMSs. They might only send texts. They might, for example, in a joint family, send uh, one brother from the field to the market, and another brother would go to a market in another town, and they would send an SMS saying where the price was better, and then the crop would be shifted from one to another. So in other words, the people who are using that new technology uh, of the cell phone in India are people who are often very, very poor. In fact, often people who are technically well below the uh, poverty level. And then, of course, you get other stories. What's one little brief anecdote, if you'll allow me? Uh, I was interviewing somebody about Chandraswamy. I don't know if any of you remember Chandraswamy. He was the great godman of the 1980s. You used to see him uh, with uh, Mobutu of Zaire. He used to advise Mobutu of Zaire as to which of his ministers he should uh, sack, to put it politely. And then you used to have pictures of him with uh, Ferdinand Marcos or Indira Gandhi or the Sultan of Brunei. And I was interviewing somebody who'd been traveling with him about how he gave his spiritual advice uh, to world leaders. And he said, well, you know, at that time, uh, we, used to, we used to fly around on Adnan Khashoggi's DC-8. That was before everybody had planes. And I was just thinking, well, that, that actually says quite a lot about India's new rich, before everyone, has pl everyone had planes. You know, I didn't want to say, actually, I didn't own a, a plane. I have a car, but you know, I haven't yet gone on to having a plane. But that, it's that way of thinking that is prevalent among this uh, elite at the top of the uh, Indian economy. Now, what about at the opposite end? Again, the stories are, are startling and shocking, although in a very different way. So, for example, uh, when I was in Bangalore meeting some very inspiring entrepreneurs, I made a trip about 100 miles south to a little village near Mysore, a temple village, and I met somebody by the name of Venkatesh. Venkatesh had been... Uh, effectively a bonded laborer inside a quarry. In other words, his boss in the quarry had lent him money and had then suddenly hit him with a bill of saying, uh, you owe me the equivalent of, I think it was about a couple of hundred dollars. And Venkatesh ran away and he was caught and he was brought back and he was put into fetters, into metal fetters. And he lived for almost two years inside that quarry, as did several others, as effectively a slave of the quarry owner. And he was only released because by chance during an election campaign, some farming activists came to the quarry, uh, realized what was happening, and then effectively stormed the, the quarry, and the people who were enslaved were released. Now that is a particularly extreme example, but it is uh, not unique. Uh, I actually spoke to one of the farming activists who'd freed him, and I said, you know, could this still be going on in, in Karnataka today or in other states in India? And he said, no, in that people are not manacled. But in terms of the uh, debt, the bondage which amounts to slavery, it's pretty much the same thing. And equally, in Bangalore itself, one of the main kind of tech hubs of South India the conditions in which the people who, uh, who, who are doing the construction projects are truly horrifying. So it's almost as if you have uh, the prosperity and you have the extreme poverty side by side. They're not in different parts of the country. They're all very much um, shaken up together. And one uh, particularly worrying offshoot of that extreme poverty, particularly in a, a, a stretch of land called uh, Dandikaranya in central India, is the Maoist 
rebellion. And what was interesting about the Maoists themselves, not so much the ideologues who were caught up in a kind of uh, redundant 1960s ideology about how you uh, kill representatives of the state and then somehow you make a purer system. What was, what was interesting was, if you like, the, the troops, the people who were Maoist soldiers. Um, I met a woman called Sunita, who was 19 years old, who had been a Maoist commander for four years. So she joined them at about the age of 11 or 12 because the Maoists had come to her village. They'd sung revolutionary songs, and she thought, I don't want to be a landless laborer like my parents, so I will join the Maoists. And so this girl of 19 had spent four years doing things like uh, planting landmines in the middle of roads. So if you've got those two things going on simultaneously, uh, what can the state do in a country like India, which operates in the way that India does. I mean, there have been things like the National Rural Employment Guarantee Scheme, whereby individuals who are unable to work are given a comparatively small wage in order for getting a certain number of days of labor every year. There's a new rather remarkable idea, which is called the UID Scheme, which involves the scanning of the iris of every Indian. So that's 2.4 billion irises, or a little bit less, because some people might have less than two eyes. And uh, essentially, the reason for scanning the iris is that people who are laboring have often had their fingerprints worn down to the point where they're quite hard to recognize. Whereas what you cannot do is to replicate the iris of another person. And the principle behind giving a UID, or unique identity, to every Indian is that you can, can completely bypass the uh, corrupt bureaucracy, the middleman, who again and again, when the government, either at national level or at state level, tries to give things to individuals, you bypass the middlemen. Uh, it means that people uh, who, who are on, for example, uh, subsidized rates for buying things like lentils and rice can actually get them rather than somebody else siphoning off half of it. And it's an extremely ambitious scheme. I have to say that like all uh, large uh, technical projects of this kind, you immediately think of all the pitfalls. But I went to the, um, the kind of technical hub of the organization, uh, which at the moment is still in its fledgling stages. It's only, I think, scanned the irises of about 10 or 15 uh, million people. But I have to say it was profoundly impressive. There were a lot of people who were uh, on secondment from international companies who were doing this because they really believed that it was a vital way of marrying uh, modern technology with the situation of people who are in a, who are in a dire, dire plight, in, particularly in rural parts uh, of India. And again, in the, in the kind of ministerial hub in New Delhi, a lot of the people there had come out of government jobs and they had deliberately wanted to be transferred into this department because they believed that they could make a difference. The other, play, the other way in which a difference is really being made, particularly in the south of the country, is through NGOs which are being started by people who often have worked out of India or they've worked between India and other countries. And again, they're using some quite dynamic ideas of organization to try and make those uh, NGOs actually function well. They're, they're running them like businesses. Uh, it, it's certainly a great deal more than idealism. And the thing I would say that pushes people very often to try to alter things by going to that local level in an NGO rather than, uh, for example, trying to join politics is the fact that increasingly the political system in India at a national level has tied itself up in knots. It has stagnated. And there are three uh, main reasons for that. The first is criminalization. If you are a mafia don, uh, particularly in places like Bihar and Uttar Pradesh in the north of the, north of the country, you want representation uh, at a state government level or ideally at the center in New Delhi. Uh, so, for example, there was a man called Mukta Ansari who I went to meet in Kanpur District Jail. He was running an election campaign from his uh, jail cell. He was famous for being moved from prison to prison because he managed to build a basketball court in one of the prisons that he was in without anybody noticing. Um, <laughs> and I have to say, he, he did look much the way that you would expect a North Indian Mafia Don to look. Uh, he had a, a pair of rather expensive spectacles. He had a, a, a big bushy mustache coming down there, waxed at the ends, and he was about six foot eight and very wide. So he looked the part. 
But actually, amazingly, he did not get elected. But there are people very like him who did get elected in the uh, same election. So, that, so criminaliza criminalization links up to the, the second point, which is uh, corruption. Um, again and again, you have people getting into power and realizing that they can fleece the, uh, the exchequer, the government, of enormous amounts of money. And I think this quite often applies particularly to people who've come from very disadvantaged communities who suddenly find themselves in a, in a position of political power and then take money for their party uh, so that the corruption then sort of gets entrenched within politics. And the third reason is the increased prevalence of nepotism in Indian politics. Now, in every country, you always get uh, political families. You know, in the UK, we had William Pitt the Elder and William Pitt the Younger. Here you had, uh, was it George H.W. and George W. Uh, I mean, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with political families. The problem in India is it has got so out of hand. And I'm not talking here only about the famous names like the, the Nehru Gandhi dynasty. Uh, I did a, a survey uh, recently with several other people of how every Indian MP had got into Parliament. And it was quite hard to get the information, I can tell you. But we, we, we sourced each, each piece of information from two different sources. And what it showed was that if you looked at uh, MPs over the age of 80, all of them had got there on personal merit. If you looked at MPs under the age of 30, under, sorry, over the age of 80, under the age of 30, 100% uh, of them were uh, hereditary. They were there because their mummy or their daddy was a senior politician. And there was a straight line uh, between the two. So if you, if you match age against heredity, there is a straight line uh, as it goes up. And in some parties, like the ruling uh, Congress party, uh, for example, nine out of 10 MPs under the age of 40 are hereditary. And this is, in fact, particularly a problem with India's uh, women politicians, who are often very prominent and sometimes quite powerful. People like Sheila Dixit, people like Sonia Gandhi. And, but, but at a parliamentary level, 70% of women MPs were uh, from political families. They'd got there because of the, the clout, the nepotistic clout uh, of their family. And I think that that sort of encourages people really to move outside the political sphere and try and alter, uh, this, the, alter the, the, the gap between rich and poor in other ways. But I've talked so far about the rich, I've talked the, the very rich and about the very poor, but I think that there is another uh, emerging class which is at the root of what's going to carry India forward. And I think that... To a large extent, what has happened, particularly since 2000, so let's say about 10 years after the economic reforms, the liberalization of the Indian economy first came in, what you increasingly see is the emergence of a highly dynamic new uh, Indian middle class. Uh, the, the management guru, C.K. Prahalad, who died a year or two ago, he said that on every Indian street you can see economic activity. You can see somebody selling individual cloves of garlic. You can see someone else selling individual cigarettes. Someone else might be hauling televisions. There is always something going on. I'm sure any of you who spent time in India will have noticed that. You cannot walk down a street without somebody doing something, selling some, something to somebody else. So it's almost as if there is a kind of um, indigenous tendency towards economic activity, which the first 40 years after, after independence uh, curtailed. And I guess that uh, came out in a rather, rather amazing way in a, in a family from Punjab in the northwest of India who were quite a successful uh, farming family. Now, you, you, may, you, may have, uh, you may know that Punjabi farmers get all over the world. I don't know if they've come to California. I mean, certainly in Italy, uh, Parmesan cheese, you know, Parmigiano Romano is often made by Punjabis uh, today. And what this particular family were doing uh, was where they, they, they had bought quite a lot of land in Chile because they knew how to farm. So they thought, well, we're doing it in Punjab. We've got cousins doing it in Italy. Why don't we take over a little bit of South America as well? So it, it's that kind of dynamism, which is extraordinary. And my, my friend who met them actually met them in Moscow airport. So they were between places. The whole extended family were there. And the grandmother was heating chapatis on an electric iron, which she had plugged in to the wall in the airport. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, it is a problem. How do you heat a chapati? I mean, you try putting it in a toaster, it's hard. You put it under the grill, you forget it, and it burns. You put it in the oven and it's too dry. You get an electric iron. <laughs> you see, that's innovation. Um, but another middle class... Uh, success story. A man I met named Datu Mahadev Vance. 
He uh, comes from Maharashtra, the area around Mumbai, Bombay. And he came from a group called uh, Mahadev Kohli. Uh, now, this is an indigenous tribal community, what in India is known as an Adivasi community. He was somebody who uh, was the lowest of the low. Uh, his family owned no land. Uh, his father used to have to turn up at the landlord's uh, property every day and see whether he could get work or not. And what happened with, uh, with Datu was that he um, was offered a job digging a pit for the construction of what would become one of Maharashtra's first wineries. And essentially, the person who owned the land had been studying uh, in the US. He'd spent a little time in California. He'd liked the wine. And he'd noticed that the climate in Nasik, outside Mumbai, was a little bit like California. And so he thought, well, maybe, maybe we could grow wine there. And he did, and it took off. And what was incredible about Datu was that he started off chopping down scrub and digging holes in the ground. But uh, essentially, the guy who owned the land thought he was good, thought he was committed. And so when uh, a man named Kerry Damsky came from California to get the, get the crop going in the first year or two of the winery, he was appointed as the fledgling cellar master. And now, I guess it must be about 15 years later, Datu is the cellar master of Sula Wines. He is still illiterate, but he told me that he knows where every bottle is, when it's been turned. He knows about the torque. He knows about the oxygen levels. He knows about all the tests that have been done. But he said other people don't, aren't able to keep that information in their head. So to help them, my cousin brother walks behind me when I go around the cellars, when I go around the different parts of the vineyard, and I tell him things, and he writes them down for the people who can't remember and need to read, you know, <laughs> where those 374 bottles are, and so on. So, uh, to go back to the question of poverty and whether India is rich or poor, I, w I would say that... Um, approximately one quarter, or between one quarter and one third of the population in India has benefited uh, very little or not at all from economic liberalization. Now, one of the difficulties about this is that a lot of what you read about the Indian economy, particularly in the UK or in the US, comes from people who have a very strong political or ideological feeling one way or the other. Either they dislike liberalization, economic liberalization, and they want to return to you know, the days of the, the command economy, or alternatively, they have an ideological fixation on the idea of the free market. And that means that often the statistics are skewed. There is one statistic which turns up again and again, which is that 77% of uh, people in India live on less than 20 rupees a day. It is completely incorrect. Uh, it's an outlying statistic taken from a survey of household uh, expenditure done in about 2004, 2005, which was then rejected in the final uh, report that it was being used for. Another example is the claim that there are more uh, children suffering from malnutrition in India than the whole of sub-Saharan Africa. Again, if you look at the, the data that's based on, uh, it's taking an ideal child... Uh, an ideal well-fed fed child to be somebody of the, uh, the weight and the physical characteristics of, I think it's an average between a child in, uh, I think it's Norway, Brazil, and the UK. And essentially, if you look at the physique of a lot of people, in, particularly in the, the southern part or central part of India, uh, they are going to be much lighter and smaller. And so, for example, Kerala, which is a place where there is very uh, little uh, extreme poverty compared to some other parts of India, those statistics say 25% of children are malnourished. It, it, is, it is not correct. So I'm not for a moment saying that uh, extreme poverty does not remain in India or that it is not one of the gravest challenges facing uh, India as it moves through the 21st century. But I think you have to look carefully to see which things are real and which things are being said because of a particular um, political motivation. And just one last story before I sum up. Um, I told you about Venkatesh, who was chained up in the quarry. Uh, there was another man I met called uh, Ramapa, and he came from an almost identical social background, but he had managed to 
uh, go to the big city. He had gone to Bangalore, and he had enrolled himself in a law college. And all the way through, up to the present day, he suffered discrimination, which meant that he couldn't really build up a law practice, even though he was well qualified. But what he did end up managing to do was to get a... Uh, a lectureship which turned into to a professorship in a government law college. And I then interviewed somebody else who was Ramapa's nephew who ended up going to live near San Francisco and making the front page for Yahoo. He was responsible for ideation at Yahoo. Uh, you know, he, he was the front door. He was the first thing that you see when he went onto their site. So... What was startling uh, during the, the series of interviews I conducted in different parts of the country was the way that you did get these very, very sudden shifts. In other words, it wasn't simply a question of things taking many generations to get those leaps. You got these very fast uh, leaps within, uh, within families. But to, 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 to sum up what I've been saying or to, or to, or to think of a, uh, the takeaway, I think it would be really that in looking at the question of whether India is rich or poor today, you have to try to think in terms of a new paradigm of what poverty and wealth means in the world today. We have grown very used to the idea that rich countries are full of predominantly rich people. But let's say 30 years from now, there's a, it's quite likely that both uh, China and India will be as rich as the United States. But because the populations of those countries are so much larger than Western European countries or the United States, you've got a, around uh, 1.2 billion or more in both countries, what you're not going to see is a situation where the complete population goes in a certain direction. Instead, I think what you're going to see is what I've described previously as Schrodinger's countries. And this comes from the image of you know, Schrodinger's cat and the philosophical concept that the cat in the box may be alive or may be dead. And therefore, you could argue that the cat is simultaneously alive and dead. Um, in the same way, I think that countries like particularly the BRIC countries, Brazil, Russia, India, China, have to be seen in a different way as countries that may be simultaneously rich and poor. In other words, they will contain uh, a substantial middle class. They will uh, contain some disproportionately rich people, but they will also contain some very poor people. And what this is all about, what I guess this is all coming out, uh, coming out of, is the huge global shift that has taken place in our lifetime, in which the preconceptions uh, that you might have about one part of the world or another part of the world uh, are constantly shifting. It is no longer possible to be certain which the predominant countries are going to be in, in say, 100 years from now. And I think that the world today, uh, the rise of Asia, the comparative decline of the West, has led to a situation where uh, the global polity uh, is more complex now than it probably has been at any point uh, since the middle of the 16th century. Thank you very much. <laughs> I'm interested in your view of Manmohan Singh's legacy. He's yeah. under a lot of criticism these days. Yeah. Uh, what will be his ultimate legacy, and do you think he'll serve out his, his full term? Well, you, you know, if you'd asked me that question two years ago, I, I would have said that his legacy is secure. The problem for Manmohan Singh is that he came uh, to power as prime minister in 2004 when Sonia Gandhi, the leader of the Congress Party, the Italian-born leader of the Congress Party, said that she did not want that job. And he, did very, he, did, he, he performed very impressively. He's now in a very difficult situation where he is being, uh, not personally, but his government is being accused of corruption and incompetence. And my, my feeling is that when he leaves power, which probably will be at the end of this term, I think he'll probably you know, last, in, last as prime minister until 2014, most likely, uh, that people will be disappointed with him. They will say that it's a letdown. They'll say that he hasn't all achieved all the reforms, the further reforms which are clearly needed, which he should have achieved. But maybe in the longer term, let's say in two decades' time, I think he will be seen as one of India's great prime ministers because he did some truly remarkable things, uh, first as finance minister and then as prime minister. I have a question with regard... Actually, a two-part question. 
Um, when you compare China and uh, India's growth, China has substantially uh, grown well, not, uh, at, a, at a faster clip. And it seems that that they kind of started it at the same part. They're both nuclear powers. They both have almost a billion, or uh, India has about, about a billion people each, uh, vast uh, natural resources. And yet it seems that uh, China was able to excel at a faster clip than um, uh, than India. And then the other part of that is, uh, why is it that the United States earlier on chose to kind of back China and their growth over India when India was a democracy um, and had, as I said, uh, basically the same powers? I think, I think in answer to your first question, uh, essentially the reforms in China came in in, in 79. They were planned in 77, they came in in 79. Whereas uh, the reforms in, in India came in effectively in, in 91. So China had that head start. The other great difference is, of course, the political system. Uh, India, for all its faults, is an extremely busy, noisy, vibrant democracy. If people don't like things, they will be out in the streets in very large numbers. Uh, in China, you have the, the advantage of being able to say, oh, let's just knock down that half of the town, or let's just build a bridge here. And generally speaking, the politician making that decision will get away with it. In India, you cannot do that. Um, the second part of your question um, has momentarily skipped my mind. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, the, the decision of the U.S. to... Com well, I, I'm not sure if you can really say that the U.S. backed China... Politically, I think really what happened was that China's growth was led and, and is led by uh, manufacture for export, whereas India's boom, uh, even today, is an internal consumer boom. So most of what is going on in India is being generated within the country, is being consumed within the country. That's the uh, substantial difference. But I, I mean, I would agree that the U.S. took too long to to look to India as its major ally in, in Asia. And even today you see a situation where the tilt to Pakistan is still there. I mean, you know, luckily General Mike Mullen made that speech, President Obama made a statement a few days ago that maybe at last that shift towards Pakistan uh, is, is being seen for what it is, which is something that is not uh, in the US interest. But essentially, the, the shift towards India that you saw, I mean, it came when, when Bob Blackwell was the ambassador in the US, and he, had, he, and he said, you know, here is a, a large functioning democracy, we should make more of it. I mean, that was a, you know, one of the best things that was done, uh, in my view, or the best bits of foreign policy that was done during George W. Bush's presidency. But I think it needs to go a great deal further. With all of the corruption and nepotism that you mentioned, uh, how do reforms actually get implemented, particularly at the local level? Well, reforms very often go through at a national level. Uh, a bill will be passed, but they don't get implemented. And the places that they do get implemented, almost invariably, are where there is a good, efficient uh, local government organization. I mean, one uh, good example would be uh, in Bihar. Nitish Kumar, the chief minister, has pushed reforms through at an amazing pace, and you can see the results. And, um, you know, one, one slight source of optimis optimism is the fact that governments which do not perform, particularly at state level, uh, tend, tend to get a very strong swing against them. The anti-incumbency vote in India can be extremely strong. And bear in mind that at Indian elections, the turnout is often around sort of 80, 85%. So, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you've got a problem getting people out to vote, just remind them about India, where, where pretty much everybody turns out to, to, to do their electronic voting. Also, you know, in India, you always have electronic voting machines. You don't have hanging chads or crosses on bits of paper. Everything's electronic. Good evening. Uh, my name is Neil Rampal, and uh, thank you for the discussion this evening. Uh, when I was in India in 2007, uh, I picked up a book called Mistaken Modernity, and um, I actually don't recall the author's name, but basically the premise was despite the increasing wealth of Indian citizens that the true measure of a society's advancement was how people were treated in that society. And he argued that because of the lingering effects of the caste system that India in, in many, many ways was still a very um, society not 
as advanced as it mm-hmm. thought of itself. There is, of course, still caste prejudice and discrimination, but I think one of the great feats of India since independence has been uh, the, way, the way that you've had new caste movements, you've had lower caste movements which have taken power uh, at, 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 you know, in government, and really the caste, system, the caste system is something that is continuing to unravel. I mean, there are people now in positions of power, whether it's political power or economic power, who at any point in the last three or four millennia could never have been in those positions. I mean, just one example is Mayawati, the chief minister of Uttar Pradesh. The population of Uttar Pradesh is the same as the population of Brazil. She is somebody who comes from a a Chamar family, a very low-caste family. She was one of, I think, nine children. She grew up in something close to a slum on the edge of Delhi, and yet she is now chief minister of that state. So I think the caste system uh, is changing very fast. You mentioned the Maoist rebellion. It's been sort of festering there for 40, 50 years now, like really since Mao was around. Um, and, and it's sort of this atavistic thing, but it's still there. And I'm just sort of curious, particularly in places like Bihar, um, is it going away? Is it Will it? go away with uh, more prosperity? What, what's your estimate of its future? Well, I mean, the, the, the problem is that very often the places where the Maoist rebellion is strongest is the same places where people want the minerals, they want the timber. And so for people from those areas, it's not hard to get them, particularly if they're you know, young, like Sunita, who I mentioned. It's not hard to say, well, you're not going to get anything under the present system, so come and join uh, the Maoists. So... I wouldn't say that problem is going away. The other difficulty is that the government, uh, well, for years now, has been unsure whether it's going to go for a, a military response or a developmental uh, response. And you know, one, one other point is that the ideologues at the head of the party uh, won't budge. They won't shift. They won't negotiate. I'd, I met one of them, um, a man called Kobad Gandhi, who'd been on the run uh, He'd actually he'd he'd studied at a, a distinguished college in London. He'd come back to India and then he'd gone on the run and he'd and he'd just been caught uh, after thirty years. Uh, but but I mean the the ideological heads of that movement uh, will not change the way they think. I'd like to follow up a little bit on the comments you made in Pakistan. Do you see any constructive path forward in terms of the relationship between India and Pakistan that would enable them to function in a more neighborly way than they have since independence. Hmm. Well, you know, the, the, the great difficulty from the Indian point of view is that if you have got people who are coming across your borders and doing things like the 2611 attacks in Mumbai, when, you know, hundreds of people were, were murdered, you're, it's quite hard for you to establish a good relationship with that neighboring state when you know that those people were let's say, trained in collusion with elements within the uh, security and intelligence and military uh, structures of Pakistan. So from India's point of view, they're not particularly inclined to change things at all. I think on the Pakistan side, there's a great tendency to assume that India wants to do Pakistan down, that uh, Pakistan is under threat from India. That may have been true at various points in the past, but I don't think it's true uh, today. So... You know, everybody says, and probably rightly, that the, the Kashmir dispute is the thing that has to, has to give over time. But that probably is not going to happen until you get a quite strong uh, government in power in Islamabad, in Pakistan. So if you had, a, let's say, two you know, fairly strong uh, governments with quite a lot of public support, you could then perhaps get some permanent peace settlement on Kashmir. You were mentioning earlier that there are people in positions of power now that never would have been there mm. had the caste system been as prominent now as it, as it was before. But at the same time, you were also talking about the rampant nepotism in politics, which to me, the notion that people would follow in the career path of their parents and of their relatives sounds a lot like the caste system. And so in some ways, sure. I wonder whether, the, whether there might just be widespread voter sentiment um, that's a little bit tied to the former caste system, which is leading to these people continuing to... Assist. Right, well, I mean, you know, there are people who say that. They say, well, actually, you've got a new caste, which is the politician caste, <laughs> and that we need to recognize that. Um, I guess I would make the distinction between the, the problem of nepotism is a national problem in the parliament in New Delhi. Uh, the, 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 the thing of new groups, new regions, new castes, new communities emerging is at state level. And you know, in the same way with the system you have here, uh, the, the 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 state power 
very often has more influence over your day-to-day life in many ways than the, than the government at the center. First of all, my compliments. You have done an excellent job looking at the poverty, the riches, <laughs> the shortcomings, and the creativity. One thing, by the way, need, need to be paid attention to, that uh, the states, smaller states, the coastal states, southern states, as well as Haryana, smaller ones, well run by the state governments and state leadership, mm. have done a very good job. Whereas the center of the country, where majority of the people live, UP you refer to, Bihar you refer to, and Madhya Pradesh, very large population, which are more than the population of Western Europe, and certainly more than the United States. There the changes have not come for a variety of reasons. However, when people compare China and India, all that comparison will change if the central part of India, which you refer to Nitish Kumar-like leaders, if they bring in the English language, technical education, the way Kerala did, Mysore you referred to, Andhra Pradesh did, Gujarat is doing. The change has not been calculated yet. India will change very rapidly. Um, earlier this year at Zocalo, uh, another author was here, Richard Kaplan. He wrote a book called Monsoon, and he talked about how the uh, locus of global power has moved from the Atlantic to the Pacific Ocean and now potentially out to the Indian Ocean. Hmm. And I was wondering how aware do you think the Indian state, the government, is about their role uh, in counterbalancing like China in that region and how it is on the global stage? Well, I, I, would say, I would say that Indian politicians at the center are very, very aware of it, but they have not yet worked out what to do. Because again and again, when uh, resolutions come up, for example, before the UN Security Council, India abstains. Wherever possible, India will abstain. Uh, now, you know, those of you with very long memories will think back to the 1950s when uh, India was central to the non-aligned movement, the idea that you could be part of a new power block which did not tip towards the Soviets or towards the, the US. Now, over time, things have changed, that's unraveled. And the idea that India is, if you like, a kind of diplomatic uh, example to the world or an example in foreign policy to the world has very much been uh, put behind them. But what has not happened is a real concerted effort to say, well, if we are going to be one of the world's uh, largest economies, if not the world's largest economy, by the middle of the 21st century, we have to think about our expanding global role. I think a lot of the uh, a lot of the energy has been put into, um, if you like, hiding hiding the head in the sand of saying, well, we we don't want to deal with that particular uh, issue yet. And and you know, in general, I would say that China has been much faster, more fleet of foot in how it's dealt with uh, many international issues. And certainly in terms of securing resources in Africa, China has been uh, much cannier. Where India has been effective in, in gaining uh, resources or potential resources in Africa, it has almost always been done through private companies. Uh, you know, and, and some Indian companies have done that very successfully. I um, have enjoyed your lecture. The, the aspect of religion I have not heard you talk about, and I'd like to have you reflect on the divergence and the, the disassociation of the religious characters. Wow. <clears throat> now, that's another lecture. You've got to invite me back next year. <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> I mean, my, my feeling, and I, I've taken a little bit of flack for this, but I, I write about it in the, in the book, in the third section of the book. Uh, my feeling is that uh, religious practice and uh, religious devotion is absolutely integral to the way in which Indian society works. But because uh, Hinduism is the predominant religion, and Hinduism is not a religion that has a, uh, a leadership, it doesn't have a sacred book, it doesn't have commandments, it can be very nebulous, it can be very hard to say exactly what uh, Hinduism is. But my feeling, having, having been uh, you know, knocking around there for quite a long time, and I'm you know, married into an Indian family, my, my wife is from India, it, it's very clear to me that religion is absolutely integral to the way in which people go about their day, almost without exception. And I would actually include within that uh, Indian Muslims, Indian Christians, Indian Parsis, other religious communities in India. But often it's a very subtle, uh, very private thing. Um, but I think it's something that is is really crucial to seeing how the, how the country really works at, 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 at the most personal level. I read recently that India launched its own international aid agency. Um, and I'm curious about that because I know that it's still receiving a lot of money from organizations like USAID and mm, other mm. Um, big donations. So I'm wondering, A, your thoughts on that, and B, 
Um, what is your assessment of how that aid money has been used and if what its role is in alleviating poverty in India today? Right. Well, you know, you, you do have this bizarre situation where... Um, I don't know exactly how, how your finances are here, but in, in the UK, the British government is borrowing money in order to give substantial amounts of aid to India, which is then giving it to Africa in India's overseas aid program. It's kind of a bit loopy. Um, but, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that that should necessarily uh, be phased out immediately because a lot of the um, USAID and other foreign aid projects in India have been very well targeted. They've been targeted at things like village sanitation. They've been targeted at things like the education of girls. They've been targeted at things that have a, a very you know, well-planned-out local impact and which nearly always bypass uh, the central bureaucracy. Uh, you find that most foreign government aid machines go directly to an efficient state government uh, rather than going through any other uh, means. So, you know, probably over time it will... Um, it, w it will need to be phased out. And certainly electorally, it is quite hard, I think, for politicians to say, you know, you're hurting, but you're still going to have to give uh, overseas aid to the countries that are going to be, you know, in charge of you economically uh, 10 years from now. I mean, you can see why that's hard for a, a hard sell for a politician. You mentioned something about the caste system within the political climate loosening up a little bit. I wonder if you could mention something about marriages within the caste system in India. Marriages within the marriages. caste system. Ah, this is such a contentious issue. Um, I mean, I, I, th I think really the only, only way to answer that question is to say that it, it depends completely on what bit of society you're from, where in India you're from, uh, as to how that is going to impact on you. You will have some uh, very traditional families uh, who will feel that it is absolutely necessary that people marry within their caste. And, you know, of course, a lot of marriages in India are still arranged. And you can see, um, you know, anybody who's been to India will probably have seen the matrimonial ads uh, in, in the newspapers where it will say that you want the boy to be fair, you want him to be a shatria, you want him to be earning this salary. It will say that the girl has this particular qualification in mechanical engineering. I mean, it will be, be very clearly a business arrangement between those families. And the, you know, the parents and the aunties are not going to want the wrong, wrong person to come in. But equally, you do get other uh, parts of the country, particularly in urban areas, where it's not of great... Uh, importance, where it's almost incidental, where people very consciously say, well, we're not even thinking in those terms, and so what if there's a, a, a deviation in caste between, between those people? So, you know, as ever with India, there is no single answer to that question. Thank you. <laughs>